Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here, and I'm joined with my other colleague, my fellow philologist and Hebraist, not to mention Aramaist, Dr. Peter Lee. We went down to the cave where we keep the philologists because we want to talk today about Deuteronomy. And I found you down there in your robes uh, with your philologist spectacles perched on your nose as you're perusing a scroll, Dr. Lee. And I said, today is our day. It's just you and me talking about Deuteronomy. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Amen. Now we can talk about what the Apostle Paul refers to as the Scriptures. That's right. Without any uh, Without any distraction. distractions, right. <laughs> you know what? Now let's just take it over. Let's just take over the whole podcast. You know what? Why didn't we start off this way? This is how it should be. This is the way it should be. <laughs> you know, just Old Testament men talking about the Old Testament. We can take off these silly coats and ties that we always wear and oh, put, on our, put on our ancient garb I that we, what we don. Yeah, yes, the Franciscans, the Franciscans down the road here in the Washington Theological Consortium with us, they see what what uh, us philologists do, and they say that's that's kind of outdated. You know, totally that, that feels a little heavy-handed. I totally agree. They can't have all the fun. <laughs> well, this will be great. I love this. I I love it too, and we get to dive into what is for both of us a favorite topic and uh, a favorite book. I'm not gonna, I'm not going to put that on you. I make the argument that this is the hub of the Old Testament. I don't think you would disagree. I don't. I've actually said the same in a number of my classes. Uh, in fact, you know, Genesis to Deuteronomy, I don't get to Deuteronomy, but that's strategic because I put Deuteronomy in with um, Joshua to Judges because, yep. and I have a whole thing explaining why uh, that's so important. Uh, and uh, the argument is also to show that uh, Deuteronomy is arguably the most important book of the entire Old Testament, arguably also the entire Scripture. And uh, part of the uh, reason why um, I begin in Deuteronomy with Joshua and Esther, it just gives me an, a platform to kind of explain that. That's right. And yeah, it's not the, the point is not that Deuteronomy is so great, and that's why we say it's the hub. It, it, it really is structurally uh, the capstone of the Pentateuch. Moses tells us that. He says, you need to remember everything we've talked about before so that you can then draw this theology out of it. What do you learn from Genesis? What do you learn from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers? You learn the theology of Deuteronomy told in other forms. And then, of course, as you said, it's it's the capstone of the Pentateuch, but it's also the groundwork now. It's the foundation of not only the histories, but if we're thinking kind of in that Hebrew canon, uh, where you have a, a tripartite division of the Old Testament, the Torah, the Navim, and the Katavim, you know, Deuteronomy really st- stands as a as the groundwork for those prophets, including, as you said, Joshua through Kings, but then also Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, the other prophets that they're they're reflecting back and applying that theology clearly, and that's why the, the idea of the hub is that the Old Testament really revolves around the teaching that is distilled here in Deuteronomy. I I totally agree. In fact, uh, I love the fact that 
there's someone else that shares these thoughts <laughs> and we can talk about it without any outside influence. That's it's, right. It's just terrific. Yeah. Why didn't those, we do this earlier? Those guys who just read the epilogue. Absolutely. The, the, the inspired commentary. That's right. <laughs> and then the uh, and then the inspired dictionary, those uh, ST guys. So so if we haven't if we haven't gotten you there yet, you need to be excited about the book of Deuteronomy. So these are reading guides, Doctor Lee. And so what do if you see? We're sitting down with uh, you're sitting down with one of your children, or you're sitting down with a member of your congregation who's about to delve into the world of Deuteronomy. What do they need to know? What what do we want a, a young reader or a new reader to the book of Deuteronomy? And of course, we're keeping in mind those who who think they know it well, but maybe are revisiting it and want, want to glean some new truths from it. What, what what do they need to know about the book? Well, I mean, that is uh, such a great question and an important one. I mean, you hear we've been kind of going on this thing about the significance of Deuteronomy and and. And and I love how you put it in the context of children, you know, because it really has to be that clear. And, and I think and I think it is to a certain extent. Uh, I, I I am going to share a few, a few things here, but I know you've done a lot of work in Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, you've written books uh, on 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 Deuteronomy six and that great call to love the Lord your God. You've also done the intro. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the chapter in Deuteronomy on the Old Testament intro, that collaborative thing that we did as a, as an RTS faculty, the Old Testament faculty. So I, I'm going to share some thoughts, but I definitely think uh, th this is your area. This is your uh, thing of uh, discussion. So, okay, wh what's important about Deuteronomy? In, in one sense, it's actually, uh, in, a, in a manner of speaking, I guess, we can almost see it as written to a younger generation. If you think about it, you yeah. have the Exodus. Uh, everyone knows the story about Moses and the Exodus out of Egypt and uh, the Israelites that left. Uh, and then the, after receiving the law at Sinai, they are now in a period of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they violated the, the law of God. That generation, remember, that left the Exodus with Moses died in the wilderness. The ones who enter into the land after that 40-year period are, in essence, their children, a, a second generation of Israelites. Uh, Deuteronomy is essentially, you know, a, a new version—well, not a new version, it's sort of a renewed version of the Mosaic Covenant that is written with that generation as they are entering into the land that is now giving them sort of the covenantal constitution of how you are going to live as a people of God in the land of Canaan, how you are going to uh, uh, live covenantally as you enter into that land with that generation. So really, this is a book that is written for uh, that kind of generational crowd to remember your forefathers, how they sinned. Don't be like them. Uh, remember the God of your ancient forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how he was faithful to them, the promises that he had made. Those promises are yours. That's how you're receiving this land. Um uh, in one sense, you could see how Deuteronomy is written for that type of uh, uh, second-generational mindset of yeah. uh, covenant children as they are receiving this law and now entering uh, into— at least that's one way to begin, I think. I think that's great, yeah. And, and this idea of the Exodus generation failing and therefore being disciplined by the wandering, and then out of that comes the conquest generation— 
who is now charged with going into the land and receiving the the positive end of the promise that maybe the exodus in a way is is the negative end of the negative in the sense of it's being you're being taken out of slavery but that's that's only part of the redemptive plan that God has in store for his people the second being the positive part being brought into the land and that this is the generation that's going to enjoy it. It's interesting. I, I noticed as you were saying that it reminded me of, of Deuteronomy chapter five, two, where Moses says, the Lord made this covenant with your fathers at Horeb, right? Speaking of Sinai, speaking of that Exodus generation, but then what does he say? But this covenant is for you standing here today. You know, and that that gets at the kind of covenant community aspect. It's it's right to place uh, a book in its historical context, and yet to remember this this important principle that I think Moses is is broaching there, which is that these words, these covenants that God is making with His people, are also applied to the generations that come after them. And actually, Deuteronomy will make that point too. You know, when your children ask you down the road, why are we doing all these things? We will remind them of what the Lord did for us in Egypt, how he brought us out of slavery and gave us this land. You know, again, talking about the multi-generational, covenantal, trans-historical aspects of not just the book of Deuteronomy, but, but all of God's word. Right? Amen. Amen. I mean, I guess from a that mindset, you could see how, you know, they have just witnessed their parental generation um, dying out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. I think the logical question could be, you know, what's going to happen to us? You know, yeah. is is the same thing going to happen to us? And uh, to a certain extent, you could see how Deuteronomy is affirming, no, you have survived the wilderness. In fact, I I blessed you. You got that. You received the manna, the the quails, the water in the wilderness. Your clothes didn't wear out. Hey, there's that passage in Deuteronomy that says how. Yeah. Oh, you know, your your sandals have not worn out. I mean, you know, I, that might be literal. That might be mildly embellished. The whole point is that you have been uh, preserved through divine providence. Yeah. The uh, I am your God. Uh, I have not abandoned you. Uh, in fact, I am with you all the more. You can call me your God. Uh, and Deuteron- Deuteronomy is a great way of affirming that assurance to that generation that you know the task before you is great. I mean, these Canaanites are powerful; they are they outnumber you, they outgun you, uh, but yet you still will be conquering. You still will be victorious because mm-hmm. I'm your God, and oh. and it's just a great way to uh, remind them of that simple truth. It's a great truth for us to remember in our day to day. It's important that I am your God, and I am giving you this land. That's a, that's a phrase. Uh, uh, that is repeated throughout Deuteronomy, the land that I am giving you, the land that I hereby give you, right? And that he is the one giving them the land, regardless of the iron chariots of the Canaanites. They they may not take the land, as we'll read in Joshua and Judges, because of their own unbelief, because of being tested, but God has given it to them. And that that's a really important reminder, even for us today, when we look at the world around us and we are reminded of verses like Christ telling us in the Gospel of John, I have overcome the world, and to yours is the earth, and to yours is the kingdom, right? Um, And yet at the same time recognizing 
that we too are kind of like kind of like that conquest generation okay in a, in, a, in a kind of typological sense of course but let's let's okay so we've talked about the canon we've talked about a little bit of this historical context and what i mean by canon is is this idea of deuteronomy sort of sitting in the at the capstone of the pentateuch and at the groundwork of the prophecies that'll come after Let's talk a little bit about its structure. Your professor, Meredith Klein, one of his first major contributions back in 1963 or so, in the early 60s, was uh, to draw some connections between recent discoveries about suzerain vassal treaties and the and the the structure or the outline of the book of Deuteronomy. And it's hard to talk about Deuteronomy without talking about these these covenants. So how, how do these covenants help us, these suzerain vassal trees, help us understand what's happening in the book of Deuteronomy? Yeah, it, uh, it is one of, uh, you know, Dr. Klein's great contributions to conservative biblical scholarship. The uh, And, you know, your uh, work on Deuteronomy and the Old Testament intro, I, you know, follows that same type of conviction because, you know, it just sort of set the bar now. This is now the new yeah. Uh, way of understanding Deuteronomy, the you know the concept of the suzerain vassal treaty preexisted, you know any work on Deuteronomy, uh, and uh, and we saw examples of that in a few places here in in there in the uh, scriptures that the Ten Commandments. Now we understand is not just Ten Commandments; it's an actual covenant following that structure right. to a certain extent. Uh, and yeah, that's right. So Dr. Klein did see. Um, that uh, the book of Deuteronomy is a larger version of that suzerain vassal treaty structure, and uh, uh, and when you look at the 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 suzerain vassal treaty structure, it's basically broken broken up into four. I'm sorry, six major areas, and if you study Deuteronomy, you could actually see those six major areas in the book of Deuteronomy. So you've got the uh, preamble where you have the great suzerain, the great king, identify himself by name. You have the historical prologue that describes the great contributions, the great con accomplishments of the great king. Those two are sort of important to set up the the structure because a third section are the actual commandments, the stipulations, the logic of the order being that you know, given who the great king is, given who he what he has done, here is now the reasons why you ought to uh, obey these these commandments. Uh, the commandments and are divided into two major sections of general commandments. What we have is sort of the Ten Commandments, the the specific application of those in different areas of of uh, of life. Uh, the fourth section is the uh, blessings and the curses. Uh, the fifth is uh, a section on divine witnesses. Mm. The sixth and the final is a documentary clause that says you can't add or yeah. or, or take anything away. And so if you look at Deuteronomy, it follows that uh, broad structure, uh, uh, or the broad structure of Deuteronomy follows that six-fold uh, section to, uh, to, uh, to a real great extent. Yeah. And as these were discovered, whether, you know, first in Hattushis, you know, right, or, or around the area of modern-day Turkey, the ancient Hittite Empire, and of course also in the Neo-Assyrian period, we find large libraries of these, of these covenants. You know, scholars like Klein recognize, wait a minute, this describes these books and some of these accounts like Genesis 15 of God and Abraham coming together. What's happening with those, you know, the, the theophany passing through the body, the animal parts, um, you know, all of this kind of drawing our attention to the fact that this, this would have, there would have been a certain 
understanding here. This would have been something that people understood as a structure. And, and one of the things I've pointed out is that in in one of my classes, uh, when I go through this, I, I, I once had a student from the State Department who was in the class, and she raised her hand and said, you know, this is actually kind of the structure of, of the NATO Treaty, too, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, there, there's a certain... You know, there's a certain uh, natural or organic aspect to these kind of covenantal structures. And we clearly see that show up in the book of Deuteronomy. If you if you start reading Deuteronomy, many people are, are surprised. They think, well, it's going to be a bunch of laws. But actually, chapters one through four is a is a recounting, a, a travel log, as it were, of how the Lord has been with Israel and has been faithful to Israel since the Exodus, primarily. Uh, even when they've been faithless, the Lord has been faithful, right? And so you establish his divine benevolence in the past, that historical prologue. What happens at the end of chapter four? You get to chapter five, which is the Ten Commandments. And and, and as uh, I and, and others argue, this is kind of the, the, the table of contents for the section on the stipulations that's going to continue on then to the end of chapter 26. You then get the rules for uh, a ratification ceremony starting in chapter 27. That continues on to the end of 28. You get redemptive historical uh, blessings and curses in chapter 29 and 30. And then you get that historical epilogue where that includes also uh, the drawing together of the witnesses and the and the writing of the law in chapters 31 and to the end. And that it really does kind of interestingly, more so than you would even maybe expect. You kind of expect a certain give and take and, and, and marginal difference in these things, but it actually kind of fits pretty closely with what we'd expect from looking at a covenant. So so why is that why is that significant to us? How do we understand Deuteronomy then in kind of broader covenantal history? Yeah, that's uh that's a great question, I think, for you to answer, since you're the <laughs> you're the Deuteronomy man in the manner of speaking. Uh, let me let me. Uh, uh, maybe you, why don't rephrase. you take a shot? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it it it's definitely helpful, I think, to remember that you know the call to obedience, you know, to obey the law of God is not is in the context of a covenant. Mm-hmm. It's in the context of something like the book of Deuteronomy, that uh, it isn't just raw obedience. Uh, it is, and I think the, the, the fact that we have the, the call to obedience in the context of covenant is helpful because of the way that it is structured. It begins not with commandments. It begins with preamble, historical prologue. Yeah. I am Yahweh. This is who I am. This is what I have done. Uh, but in the context, and this does, I think, is a, uh, I don't know if it's a unique thing, but it's definitely peculiar to the biblical covenants that, that makes it distinct from uh, ancient covenants outside of the Bible, is the fact that the historical prologue directly has an impact on the people of God, meaning, I am Yahweh, and I have redeemed you. Right. Now you are a redeemed people by implication. Yep. Uh, the extra biblical covenants outside of scripture is more of, you know, I am Shamshi the fifth, I am Hammurabi, yeah. I am I am um uh whomever. I built the temple of Shamash, I conquered the city of Mari, you know, I did you know, I did all these things. I built uh, the dam for to provide the waters over the uh the river Euphrates. <laughs> you know, whatever it mm-hmm. might be. But it doesn't have a direct impact on the people. It's yeah. it's more of you know this. I'm the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. Therefore, <laughs> fear right. me. Otherwise, if you don't obey, then I will kind of come down upon you. The biblical covenants aren't quite like that because the historical prologue directly has an impact on the people. 
I am Yahweh, I have freed you, now live like free people. It's essentially yeah. sort of the logic. And in fact, you could say that the whole indicative imperative thing that we kind of hold to as the foundations of our Christian ethics, uh, that that uh, our New Testament guys will reiterate is sort of what Paul is doing. You know, here is who you are in Christ, therefore now live uh, as obedient people, which is exactly what Paul does. But Paul is just repeating Deuteronomy because no. it's embedded in the covenant structure of the Christian life. So to not see it that way does sort of begin to undermine the whole indicative imperative type of idea. Uh, now you're just sort of left with obey. Uh, unless you, if you don't see it in that context, you're just sort of stuck with obey. It just sounds way too just moralistic. Go, yeah, just go you know? do it. Yeah. Right? It, just it, go do it. And, right. And so to, to put it in that context, it distinguishes you know, Christian ethics, Christian morality, and Christian call to obedience as now different than Dr. Phil or Oprah or Ellen, you know, otherwise it, it's, we're just saying the same thing, love people, be good to others, obey mom and dad, which is what we should do. Right. But um, the context is now different in, as we see it in this. And it would have been so vivid too, because like an ancient Near Eastern king, the Lord is going out with his people. He's in their midst, just like uh, you're, you're right. The, 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 the Hittite or the Neo-Assyrian emperor would be going out with his armies, with his throne chariot and all of his entourage with him. And here the Lord goes out and is living in the midst, but uh, of his people through the tabernacle, like, like a King's tent going around in the desert and going into battle with them. You know, one of the battle cries that actually I would argue it becomes uh, the name of the sign child in, in Isaiah seven. But the, the, you know, think of Deborah when she's going out to battle says, don't you know, the Lord goes before you, you know, uh, when they go into the land, the Lord is the one who's going in and giving them the land, the sign child in Emmanuel uh, in Isaiah seven fourteen, Emmanuel remember is a sign of God's victory over his enemies. And was it God is with you. And that again, is kind of coming back to this covenantal, and very personal aspect of uh, what we see in the book of Deuteronomy. Be, you know, um, live in these ways because God has these attributes. You're living out God's character. It's probably most distilled in this idea of be holy because I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. In other words, it's not just be holy. It's not just go out and do these things and by following the rules, you'll somehow attain maybe a greater enlightenment or something like that. But you're living out this personal relationship, which is so important for all of, all of our theology to remember yeah. that our, our theology is haunted with the character of the triune God. And it's never just learning formulations or our list of ideas or building a, a, you know, a kind of inventory of propositions, but it is a, well, it may include those things. It's a relational knowledge. It's a covenantal knowledge. It's, yeah. it's how do we know and acknowledge the Lord in all that we think Amen. and do. Amen. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't seem accidental that when Jesus uh, was asked to, um, you know, what is the greatest commandment, he is going to Deuteronomy. No. Um, not that, you know, to love the Lord your God, but, uh, it, I, you know, it's not like it's not there in Genesis to Numbers. But the actual commandment, the explicit statement to love the Lord your God, with you know that now occurs in Deuteronomy. You know you've done so much work in the that that work there in Deuteronomy six, that great call to 
you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and then the even the history of interpretations of what that threefold division looks like. It's a uh, uh, you know that that's always so great how you how you do that and 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 wonderful. You should absolutely buy that book. It's a great uh, uh, comments on on the uh, on Deuteronomy chapter six. Well, thanks. That that actually came out of a, a study, a series of sermons that were dealing with creeds in the Bible. And when I got to Deuteronomy six, I realized I couldn't just do one, you know, one. Um, sermon on it because there's so much that's coming out of it. And if you think, let's go back to, let's, let's plant it in the context of the structure of the book. So you have this historical prologue and you have chapter five of Deuteronomy, which is the 10 commandments, the kind of table of contents for everything that's going to happen between here and uh, up to chapter 26. And then really, if that's the proper reading, then that would mean that Deuteronomy six is a part of the explication of the first commandment. And, and it's important to remember that all of these commandments are building on each other. You start with one and it goes to the next, it goes to the next, it goes to the next. So the way that we think about God will uh, affect the way that we worship him and the way that we think about other, um, other gods. It'll also affect how we honor him and honor his presence with us, which is articulated in the form of his name, you know, getting, showing his name honor, which for Deuteronomy, Remember, his name is his presence, and so Jerusalem or wherever the tabernacle goes is the place, as Deuteronomy says, where God puts his name, interestingly. You know, then you have the relationship with the parents, and, and that kind of draws our connection between God as our Father to our relationship with people around us, and then all of the implications of that in terms of property, you know, stealing and truth, lying, bearing false witness, coveting. All of this is progressive, and so we shouldn't be surprised then that the greatest commandment, according to Jesus and his interlocutors, and he never disagrees with them when they say this, is a part of this first commandment. In other words, how do we think about God? And we think about him going off of what you just said in this very indicative, imperative way. He is our God and he is one. So that's what we know of God. That's the indicative. And so as a response to his Arness, ourness, his, uh, which we would say his covenantal, he's our covenantal Lord. That's how he's our God. We don't own him. It's not possessive. It has to do with a covenantal relationship. Because he's our God, we respond with love. And because he's one, right? He's uniform. He's mono, he's monotheistic. He's, he has a saity, as the systematicians will later say of him. I think this is the beginnings of a doctrine of a saity. He is one. And what does that mean? We should then love him in a way that is appropriate, which is with all of our oneness, right? With all of our wholeness, all of our heart, which that would be the inner person, our, our, our self or our strength, our, our soul is in the King James kind of makes you think it's just spiritual. Actually, Robert Alter in his recent translation translates that second word as all of our body, which I don't think is far from the truth. Um, I'll tell you why in a second. And then all of our strength, right? All of our effect in the world around us. And it's interesting. I would actually argue that I think Moses goes on to then say, and what I mean by that is, Put these things on your heart. That's the very next chapter, you know, the very next verse, rather. Put these things on your heart. Talk about them everywhere you go. Bind them to your body, right? Your hands and your frontlets. And I think that's your nephesh, your soul, okay, as in the King James. And then put them on your gatepost and your doorpost. In other words, put it on your property. Everything that you own should be directed to the love of the Lord. And in a way, 
Think about everything that comes after in the Ten Commandments. It's all about doing that. How do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat, treat your brother? How, how, are you, how, how do you operate in society? What do you do with your wealth? Uh, I actually argue when Jesus comes along later and says where your treasure is there, your heart is also. He's, he's kind of unpacking the theology of Deuteronomy 6. And he's, he's showing us that this is, this is what God requires of us. And so what happens? We, we fail over and over. That's the story of the Old Testament is that we fail in what the Lord's required of us, and that means we need another. Yep, and uh, Deuteronomy actually anticipates that because uh, in Deuteronomy 30, it mentions how, you know, it doesn't quite say it in this context, but knowing the fact that we cannot hold to these uh, requirements on our own, the Lord is the one who will circumcise your heart, thus enabling you to do what you could not do before. Now you can love the Lord, That meaning now you can obey now you can fear God. Now you can worship. Now you can believe. Now you can repent. Uh, you know that's always that's there in Deuteronomy. We just mm-hmm. read you know uh, uh, twenty chapters previously in in different specific manifestations of how you need to obey and and love God. Uh, but you can't. But you can't do it. The Lord will circumcise your heart and uh, and thus enable you now to do and that's Deuteronomy I think that's what's important this is coming out of Deuteronomy it's yeah. not uh, now you know Deuteronomy I think is just reiterating Abrahamic language circumcision that sure. type of stuff but it's still out of Deuteronomy so I think the way to see Abraham is to not just see Abraham throughout the Old Testament into the new you have to see Abraham through Deuteronomy yeah. the Old Testament Amen. to the new yeah and that they're compounding the, the, these these relationships that we call covenants are compounding one on top of the other, and there's a future orientedness to them, which is how how can Abraham be saved? Right, as as as, as Paul says in, in Romans, he can be saved because he has faith in God to fulfill His promises. And there's a sense in which how are you saved in Deuteronomy? You have to trust in the Lord to fulfill his promises that that even includes the things that are adumbrated or anticipated that one day right the means by which your heart can be circumcised will be provided to use the language of deuteronomy right to circumcise in other words circumcision has never it's never just been about the flesh right it's always been about your hearts jeremiah is going to double down on this he's going to say it's all about your heart right and i would say actually jesus when he's praying you know, and I talk about this a little bit in, in the Wholeness Imperative book. When he's praying in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, he prays for the apostles, and then he turns and he says, and I pray for those who will believe because of their name, because of what they've said, rather, their testimony. And then he says this very interesting thing. He kind of switches over and says, Lord, as Father, as you and I are one, what is he talking about? He's, he's talking about how God is still one, even in light of the revelation of the second person of the Trinity. God is still one. The Son and the Father are one. But then he says this really remarkable thing. He says, let them also be one, as you and I are one. Mm. Right? Let them let them participate. Partake is the language that we use. They don't, Christians don't become members of the Trinity, but we participate in the loving communion of the Trinity through the power of the Spirit. And I can't help but think, Richard Balcom, uh, who Aaron White told us how to pronounce his name correctly the other day, um, you know, uh, Balcom argues, and, and I think he's right on this. I, 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 I struggle to find other New Testament authors who notice this, but, but Balcom does in his book on the Gospel of John. He says, this is Jesus reflecting back on Deuteronomy 6. Oh, yeah. The way I see it, it's, it's kind of a prayer exposition. It's, 
exposition via prayer of Deuteronomy 6, where he goes, how is it that we can be one in our love for God as he is one? It's going to be through the atoning work of the second person of the Trinity and the indwelling of the third person of the Trinity. That's how it can happen. Yeah, it's terrific. It's almost like a union with Christ in seed form in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's it's terrific. I mean, um, in, in, in many ways, you could even say the whole, the Lord will circumcise your heart is sort of, you know Moses's version of union with Christ. Yep. You know what what he could what he can't say union with Christ. Interestingly, Paul never even says union with Christ. He <laughs> right. just says in Christ. Right. But uh, you, you know everything that is entailed in that concept in uh, you know it's sort of the embodiment of covenant blessing in that one idea in, in Deuteronomy. It's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. You know you mentioned something earlier, uh, and I think this this really feeds to the. Um, conviction that I've had about Deuteronomy is how eminently practical it is, even yep. for us in the New Covenant era here, of how um, uh, when Jesus is speaking to wealth and to riches, that he is sort of expositing uh, Deuteronomy a little bit. Because uh, um, in, in your wholeness imperative, the that threefold division in Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, the, the word strength there, as you know, is, is, is actually a Hebrew very. Mm-hmm. Love the Lord your God with all your veriness, the adverbial very, which we just take as uh, strength. Right. Uh, you did some work there to, to show how there is a way of, of interpreting historically the, the word strength or the concept of strength there to not encapsulate uh, strength in a more kind of esoteric way but in a very concrete yeah it's very concrete yeah it's interesting in the the word as you said is a common word in hebrew it just never is a nominative like this other than actually the only other place it shows up like this is where just josiah is described as loving the lord his god with all of his heart soul and strength so of course it's quoting deuteronomy 6 so that doesn't help us so when we look at um the other translations then the ancient versions and of course the gospels because the gospels help us with this too the terms that particularly tend to show up in the Greek work uh, are terms related to strength, but you know, iskos and dunamis, I think both occur, but they're words that can also be used to mean something like the strength of a king. You know, you think about the strength of a king, we're not talking about his muscles, right? Or, or we're talking about his armies, his wealth, his treasuries, right? His storehouses. Interestingly, in the ancient uh, commentaries and, and translations called Targumim, okay, um, the the words that are used there in Aramaic are words that typically relate to property, either movable property, and as you know, there's a distinction between sort of stationary property and the stuff you can move, or actually in one in one uh, targum, uh, it the word that's used is mammon, which some people will know, mammon, which some people will know who have their King James because mammon is I think left unch- untranslated there. You know this idea of wealth or money, okay. And what does that seem to be getting at? It seems to be pointing out that the the way that you use your property, and that wouldn't merely be material property, that would be all of your uh, effect in the world. A, a term we use for that now is capital, um, intellectual capital, uh, you know, financial capital, no doubt, but your creative capital, your relational capital. In other words, what do you do with the strength, the effect that you have in the world around you. And I think that's actually an eminently practical. It shows up in Deuteronomy throughout those laws as they explicate the Ten Commandments. 
but it's something we need to ask ourselves. You know, I, I may not have much financial capital, but uh, I might have a lot of relational capital or political capital. And how am I using that? I think oftentimes we like to, we like to make a break between our faith and then maybe our relationships or our faith in the way that we are at work or our, or our faith and uh, the way that we think about the world around us, our governments and that kind of thing. And Deuteronomy is really resisting that. It's pushing back. It's very holistic. Very holistic. It says there should be no bifurcation between your inner life and your outer life. Yeah, and that's such a challenge, I think, in our day where we have so many moderns who compartmentalize their lives. Yeah. And, and that's I, even considered a virtue. Right. Yeah. And but and and I guess to a, to a pragmatic sense that's okay, but uh the Lord is the Lord over every compartment of our lives. And and uh and that is so uh, meaningful. I mean, you know, mm. you know, you can you know, at least I see this in a lot of the suburban living, and in, 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 I'm sure this might be the case in urban uh, settings as well. I just know the suburban setting better, where you have um, families who really try to establish sort of a heaven on earth in their homes in suburbia. You know, they'll do what they have to and work, but um, they they really want to say to safeguard the home, yeah. which is great, and I can appreciate that. But the Lord is the Lord over what you do at work, as well as how you live at, yeah. at home, and and you can't. You know, just talk about God as being uh, uh, sovereign over one aspect of our lives, even how we dictate ourselves and how we engage in our professional lives is under the lordship, covenant lordship of Christ. And and um, and and again, I, what I guess to stay on point here, this is all coming from Deuteronomy. That's yeah. what's extraordinary and what makes a book so great. And that's what I think as you're reading this book and you're going through these laws, and, and remember this is as a genre, this is a covenant. So that's why you have stories at the beginning and then moves to laws. As you're reading through the laws, I would remind you, notice, notice how deep they are. They, they, they get into like, how do you how do you handle your property? Do you put um, you know, do you protect society from a bull if your bull is known for you know for goring and that kind of thing? You know, if he's known then for that, then you have to act accordingly. Um, how do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat people who work for you? How do you treat people who work for you and are corrupt? How do you treat your neighbor when they're corrupt? How do you treat them when they're loving? How do you even, interestingly, some people are surprised. It's it's notable that Moses has rules for how we are to engage with countries outside of the land. We often reflect on how Moses enforced what was called the harem ban on, on the Canaanites, that nothing was meant to be left alive or to be plundered. And yet it's interesting when you look and see what are the rules for nations outside of the land? Well, that's to be guided by diplomacy. That's to be guided. You know, there's all these kinds of interesting, thoroughgoing instructions. Every part of the Israelite life was to be formed by this covenantal relationship, this personal relationship that they have with their Lord, their covenant God. Yeah. Amen. One, uh, if I could share just one of my favorite uh, parts of Deuteronomy is... Um, uh, well, well, you mentioned the Shema in, in uh, Deuteronomy six, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and then it, it's interesting as uh, as Deuteronomy focuses on your kind of self uh, prioritizing of your conviction to love God, then it talks about how this has to be passed on to your children. Yeah, you know, to to make sure that your children uh, uh, learn the same thing. Let's see, it says. Um, in verse chapter six and verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and talk, shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, 
and and when you rise i i, I love how and, and this is now and i think what i love about this is this isn't you know pastor to congregant yeah. or you know it's not prophet to people i mean it is that in a larger context but the the specific application here is you know mom and dad yeah it's very ordinary yeah, yeah. it's it's just talking about the kind of dinner setting you know they have that times where you know they're kind of sitting around like like they're doing passover mm-hmm. uh and the kids are there and they have no idea why they have to eat you know unleavened bread it probably tastes terrible so why do we have to do this you know why are we um you know having to eat bitter herbs you know what 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 is the deal here and how the the uh, text specifies how mom and dad are the ones who are to remind the children the reason we do this is because of the exodus uh, what god has done and that's why we have to you know uh, obey these commandments the the what i find intriguing uh is how when you read deuteronomy and then you compare that with the history of Israel and the former prophets, the Joshua judges, Samuel King's material, you could almost see a point-by-point uh, analogy or, or a kind of an intertextual connection of how uh, the history of Israel is almost a witness of how they violated Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and thus the writing of the history of Israel is kind of driven by Deuteronomy as its grid. And and um, I'm always, as I think about Deuteronomy 6 here and the passing, you know, the, the discipling of children, uh, uh, I'm always shocked by the, the book of Judges, where it talks about the Joshua generation, they die and they're, they're with now their fathers, and how a new generation arose who didn't know the Lord or anything that he had done for Israel. Yeah, I find that shocking that in one generation that they can have no concept of the Exodus, forget about the wilderness, uh, mm-hmm. The conquest—it's all distant memory, and by and large, perhaps because they failed to honor Deuteronomy chapter yeah. six here. And, well, and by the time the angel of the Lord comes and reveals himself to Gideon, right, jumping forward to Judges, what was happening? Gideon's got a Baal shrine in his backyard, and he he says something interesting. Is he says something along the lines of, "Our fathers told us about this Lord." You know, it was kind of like there's this very distant relationship now between the judge and the Lord of their salvation. And you realize that, yeah, there's so much that's happened in those three generations, the the Exodus generation, the conquest generation, and then the second generation of of the conquest where everything seems to fall apart. Again, reminding us of our need for a faithful king. And that's what the book book of Judges is about, a faithful king who can guide the people. Well, I I, want to end with that idea of remembering because the theology of remembering is so important in in Deuteronomy, this this idea that even even after the Shema, even after Deuteronomy 6 says, when when your son asks you, what are the meanings of these testimonies and statutes? You say, we were slaves in Egypt. And it's so important that our knowledge, our faith is covenantal in the same way that in a way, what, what Deuteronomy is saying is that when you go to the Lord, when you catechize your children, catechize them, train them up in a covenantal way that begins with remembering past blessings, considering the, the, the claims made on your life today, right? And living towards the future covenantal blessings. And, and that's what we do today as Christians. Uh, you know, we, when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We are remembering who he is. We are remembering his death until he comes again. It's a very covenantal thing. We remember, we, 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 uh, pay heed to the claims made on us today 
to repent and believe. And we look forward to the covenantal blessings that we have awaiting us in Christ. Just like the just like those folks in Deuteronomy did too. Amen. I mean, it's um, you know, Deuteronomy. I think it's in Deuteronomy eight that it says, you know, exactly what you were saying. Uh, remember the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. You know, you're going to get this land. You know, again, mm-hmm. remember that 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 kind of generation as they are about to enter into the land. You're going to get it. I'm going to give it to you uh, by covenantal promise. You're going to get it. Don't worry about that. But when you get there. Uh, don't forget the Lord, and don't forget that the reason you got it is because the Lord gave it to you. I, mm-hmm. God, gave it to you. If you forget, then you're going to think that it's by my power, my ability, my mm-hmm. diligence. That That's how you got it. it. It's so haunting because that essentially is the challenge, especially for Christians in our day who, uh, and by and large, a lot of folk that we work with are like this. They're incredibly educated, mm-hmm. uh, intelligent, uh, gifted um, capable people, and you know it's 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 this always challenge. You know you want to honor them because they sacrifice hours and time mm-hmm. to get to where they are, and and now are are living blessed lives, and God bless them. But uh, that temptation to remember the reason we got all we have is because the Lord gave it to us, yeah. and and uh, the Lord gave us the strength to do what we did, and and. If we if we're not cautious to remember that, we easily can forget that uh, that theocentric idea. It's almost as if you know, success without God really is a is a form of covenant curse. It's yeah. sort of what Deuteronomy yep. is saying that is challenging as it is to live a life of faithfulness and trust when things are collapsing all around us, which is challenging. It's just as challenging to do so when things are going great, yeah. Because there's nothing to force you to look to God. I mean, you mm-hmm. have to kind of discipline yourself to remember that, you know, the Lord blessed me with a great home, great job, great family. The Lord blessed me with this. You know, I didn't get it. The Lord gave it to me. Yeah. Respond with gratefulness and caution, right? That you Amen. not that you not forget that in your Amen. wealth you not become complacent. I, I think in the in many ways, the job of us here at the seminary to do theology is the job of remembering. Uh, we're remembering who the Lord is, how he's revealed himself, and what he has said that he's doing. Because sometimes it's not obvious to us in the world around us. We have to remember what he said, just like that father talking to the son in the book of Deuteronomy. So the son says, why do we say and believe all this crazy stuff? (laughs) And he says, we have to remember what the Lord's done for us. And sometimes it's going to feel that way for us too. Sometimes it's going to feel entirely antithetical or, or, you know, entirely um, counter, counter everything around us, counterintuitive to believe what we believe. And yet we do because Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Right. And he's my rabbi. Amen. Yeah, we actually believe that preaching Christ makes a difference in people's lives. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we preaching the word actually is exactly what you need. We actually believe this. Yeah. That that preaching the word is doing something. Yeah. It's not like, well, stop stop preaching and go do something. No, that's that is doing something. Amen. Well, thanks, Peter, for sitting down. I've loved this conversation. As always, I've I've learned from you, and it's great to think about this book that does really play an outsized role. It punches way above its weight class uh, in the canon, 
And um, it will benefit you in your reading of the rest of Scripture to understand how the book of Deuteronomy works and what it's saying. Thanks for joining us for this discussion of the book of Deuteronomy. We look forward to continuing this reading guide series and working through other books in the Bible. And yes, we will open the doors again and let the New Testament folks back in. Um, So we look forward to sharing that conversation with them and with you. Until then, take care. Thank you.